0: Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth.
1: Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about breaking down the silos of the pork industry. And joining us is Dr. Casey Bradley. Welcome, Casey.
2: Thank you, Matthew. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. It's good to have you here. We talked at the survivability conference about how we both needed to be on each other's podcasts, And this is going to be a ton of fun because we got some great topics to hit today.
2: Definitely. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Could you start by introducing yourself and your background and maybe just talk a little bit about your childhood?
2: Definitely. So most of the people would call me Dr. Casey Bradley, but I prefer Casey. I grew up in Southwest Michigan on a mixed crop and swine operation something unique about the county I kind of grew up in Cass County was the largest swine production County of Michigan at the time of my childhood. And most of the systems were really pasture based. So they had the special USDA grant or funding to put certain amounts of acreage into, you know, setting aside and you get paid for it. I can't remember the exact program or name, but you could use it as pasture Well. Most people think pasture for cattle and, but it was utilized in the swine industry for pork operations. And it goes into that, you know, we would fare out the gilts, we would sell the gilts at the time and then her litter as well. So it was not a longevity type of operation. And then over time it changed to where we did keep sows around for multiple parodies, but most of the people still utilized pasture-based system until about the nineties. So I had the opportunity from since I was a child, helping my dad uh, work the farrowing litters, work out in the pastures. Uh, you know, my first job was vaccinating a twelve hundred head of pigs or cutting tails, and and by then my hand I couldn't squeeze anything. You know, I couldn't grip anything after that uh, day. But <laughs> I had the you know the first opportunity of taking the sows who lived out in the green meadows all their life and put her into a commercial farrowing crate. And needless to say, it probably didn't go so well. So I've had that opportunity, and then, since in my career, really, I have tell everybody I have managed pigs in just about every setting that you can imagine outdoors, indoors, eight thousand sow level units in Wyoming for new fashion pork, and then I've also done show pigs, so I understand the complexities of purebreds and and the different challenges you have um I've worked in academia. I've, you know, at the University of Arkansas I was a researcher, but I think I rebuilt that hog barn two or three times. So from pouring concrete to being able to weld to doing plumbing and electrical, of getting hog facilities up and going, and then, you know, managing people throughout that uh so my childhood into my career of I grew up in the swine industry, I really influenced who I am and kind of where I'm at today. So
1: so if we believe the old sentiment that people say where pork production is 10% pigs, 90% people, you spent most of your life on the 10% and now you're heavily involved in the 90?
2: Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I, I should say unfortunately, but it's it's kind of funny because I look back in my career. I'm going to tell you, I wasn't the best manager. I made a lot of mistakes, and um, but I'm those problem solver and I'm tired of hearing about problems. I don't like to talk about problems. I don't like to complain. You you know, bring me a problem. I'm going to find you a solution. And I would say the pigs are the easy part. I've always said that in my career. Um, They're pretty easy if you just listen to them, but yet the people are the, the problem. So things like that.
1: It's important to know that pig element though, before you can really relate to the people though, isn't it?
2: Oh, definitely. I definitely think. And and that's why I tell my son, he's a big YouTuber and, and this is his dream. A six year old wants to be a YouTube star. And I said, well, my YouTube was my childhood was going out and sitting on the shelters and watching sows and their litters uh, interact. And that was kind of where, you know, my interaction came from and understanding. And I think in our industry today, our number one problem is, is we don't give time for our people to learn the animals. So we just put them into doing tasks and a lot of times not put into learning the animals that we're working with.
1: Absolutely. So I guess to, to dive into to people a bit and talk about your early career and to where we are today, when focusing on learning and how it's changed, like we look back at my grandfather, he just learned it on the farm. My dad learned it on the farm and then went to a community college. I learned it on the farm and then went to a four year. And how is learning changing? in regards to the people who are growing up in the industry, part one, but then also the people who are becoming career professionals in our industry?
2: Well, I think you made a good point. We all learned from the farm and then we went to college. So we had a grasp of what we were getting into before we left home. That's not the case anymore. You know, we may get some of our employees that have showed a 4-H pig. Well, raising and showing a 4-H pig is nothing like the commercial industry. It gives you a great opportunity to learn the basics of pigs and care and, you know, get that passion, but it's not the same. So when we look at that, we, and and my husband says the same thing about my six-year-old is that I want to raise him like we were raised. And I said, well, we can't. Life is not like how we grew up. It's not as simple as it was. And the fact that he has so much different information coming to him at different angles, He's definitely learning differently than we did. And I've made a comment about my child versus me. I think even the younger generation because of this constant connection and the information even as a 3 to 6 year old is receiving, they tend to have more compassion. They, I think they see things differently than even we did growing up. And so we have to take that mindset that that younger generation, those future employees and the ones currently in our barns not like what we were but yet we want to put them in that box
1: yeah because i think when i was growing up i don't know why i was thinking about this the other day but i was like i think i was like four or five when i understood what like euthanasia was and i understood like how positive of a thing it actually can be for for just in life and and its, its place and role i mean that that you kind of get desensitized to it when you're that young in regards to some of the things, just you understand them more clearly, or you're going to have a very different perspective. And that's kind of a drastic example, but when people come in at 22 years old and they didn't grow up with that being a normal thing, probably a very different perspective.
2: It's very different. And I use the example, I took Arthur, and I think he was three or four onto the hog farm and we were taking blood samples and I was processing pigs And he thought it was pretty cool. He used the iodine spray and he helped a little bit and he didn't like the screaming or anything. But the biggest thing he took away from that experience was the bucket of the dead stillborns. And he kept coming out and saying, my mommy kills pigs. My mommy kills pigs. And I'm going here. Wow. You just had a great experience. You are (laughs) spraying iodine. You got to cut tails, you know, things like that. What I thought was cool when I was a child and seen it through his eyes made me that experience and why I'm more on the, the people side of things now than the pig side was because of that, that reason. I think God gave me a child so I could learn through my child and see That's things cool. differently. So,
1: so you're involved in academia. Yes. What has that been like and with your early career and your transitions? What does that look like? And uh, have you seen in that world, an evolution of what that's looked like over the past 10 years?
2: Well, I would say say that evolution has not changed. If it has, it's we've watered down our education system and make it easier on the students than we ever have. But the evolution of learning, I'm not sure it really has changed. And, you know, I go to the example. So I was a student as a student, I was also a student, you know, manager of the farm. So I worked and went to school. So, I still had a lot more responsibilities than most students in college as my undergrad. And, you know, it was a lot of responsibility placed on me in that role. And then, you know, I worked for New Fashion Pork for a couple of years and I decided I, w- I wanted to go back to grad school. I didn't have the skills I needed to fix things. Right. I'm a fixer. So I wanted to go back to grad school and I was a student. um, Not just a traditional student there either. So I was a full time manager in graduate school. So I had to manage students every time in the evolution. And I always use the example of if I could get the kids into intro animal science and the way I managed my labs into that that program, I always recruited two or three employees to come work for me. Like they found it interesting. They found it fun. And then my last year, they took it away from me because the risk of driving all those students out there and different things. And so I see the evolution of even these facilities. We look at Oklahoma State, they don't have sows anymore. Or if they do, it's maybe for the show pigs. We look at a lot of these institutions losing their swine herds, and then the swine herds aren't really for teaching anymore. They're for research. And so you know, I go back to a a good program that I interviewed at and I didn't get a job, I think about 10 years ago with the university of Finley. And I, I think they still have a program where the students as part of their education have to take care of their animals every day. So do chores. And that's part of getting credit for school. And I think you look at that program, obviously I think that they're doing it right. So they understand what it takes to raise animals, but yet it's still small scale and they don't understand that. And then We get really smart kids and like the students I have today in my class, my intro to biology class, they're not animal science majors. They're not really AG kids. They're very bright, but they lack motivation. I I call them, they come from the helicopter moms era. Their moms have their schedule so planned out and booked that they're at the sporting bet every night of the week practice this and that. And none of them have the opportunity to learn and explore on their own. And so that's also a shift in the generational there that our student that our students that were we're receiving, they've never had the opportunity to do what I call exploration learning to where they can discover their own things. It was nothing for me to go out and discover in biology and finding critters. And my mom going, what are you putting in my freezer? You know, and then getting mad that her freezer is filling up with Casey's specimens. But if we look at that, we don't have our children getting that hands-on learning and that ability to learn themselves. And but yet we're constantly dumping information at them. But yet I can tell you, they're very, great young people and they're very, very intelligent. They just learn and do things differently than what we do.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting when you look back and everybody probably has a story that relates either to them being more scheduled out as a child or a little bit more free formed as a child. I, I grew up very scheduled and then uh, I had a younger brother who needed to be homeschooled and I had a younger sister who was who was really young. And so by the time I got to high school, I got my learner's permit at 14 and I was pretty independent, but not necessarily by choice. I was kind of you know jealous of all the other students whose parents would do their homework or help them with their with their presentation. But then you grow up and you look back and you say, you know, those were some of the years where I had to discover what it meant to be on my own and schedule mm-hmm. out my own days. And so I think in a lot of ways, there's there's all these unique perspectives, but kids in high school now with sports and everything, everything is so planned. Like you don't have hardly any free time anymore. My sister, it was every single day there was something scheduled. It was crazy.
2: No, I agree. I had a very similar childhood to yours. You had to learn to be independent. You had to go work after school, sports, whatever. You had to plan around it. And now kids seem to be catered to, to, yeah. and, and And so when you think about that and we look at how we're going to be successful, our systems haven't changed in 30 to 40 years. Our management hasn't changed. Um, It just hasn't. It's just it. When we look at COVID and everybody's like the great revolution of COVID. And I'm like, what revolution? It was kind of how I was (laughs) moving on anyways. And it was just a wake up call for us to stay as a society that things maybe do need to change, maybe a different balance there.
1: So when we look at this, this, this change, how has it been, how has gender been impacted by this and how has onboarding been impacted or, or a change in the way that we're, we're looking at, at new students, knowing that they're not necessarily, they're probably in a lot of ways smarter just because of how much has been pumped in, but. They're not necessarily as used to being free form. They're, they're much more scheduled. I mean, how is gender and all of that impacting the onboarding and, and recruiting process?
2: So if we look at our demographics, and I don't have the exact numbers to cite it like everybody would probably prefer, but we know that the demographics of animal science students, for instance, is predominantly female now, and most of those are pre-vet, where traditionally we were heavily looking at vet school animal science, more of a male-based student population. So we look at that and then we look at that trickling out into our fields to say that we have a lot more females involved. Um, We have a lot more females involved in the middle management, but I still think uh, we have not been able to really jump that to say that we have in true leadership in our industry. I don't have a lot of female examples yet that are truly leading that. And I want to make the audience clear, I'm not a feminist. I want to be treated for my abilities, but I've also learned as a career-driven woman that sometimes that path to CEO that I thought I wanted, having a child totally changed that. But yet society still thinks that well, just because we need to go after that, we need diversity up, you know, up at a CEO level. I'm sorry. I, you know, I switched career paths with AB Vista. I loved my job and my role, but I was gone 80 to 90%. And I chose my family over that opportunity to, to grow and develop in that company and that lifestyle. And so I think, you know, I think before we get worried about gender is I can give you great examples of, of really positive uh, experiences in my career with male counterparts or mentors. And I can give you really terrible examples. And a lot of times, when we think about this, we want to focus on on the problems. But I can tell you, there is still a lot of issues that need to be addressed around bringing more females in the workplace. And we're we're talking about the swine industry. The biggest things I'd like to see changed is your showers or clothing. You know, the we need to make it more comfortable. And that doesn't matter if you're a female or a male. Is that you know if we want to have welcome these younger people and get them to stay it needs to be like the sh- bathroom at your house that you're going into and not a dark dungy, concrete cold dirty place and- yeah
1: the the whole communal shower concept needs to <laughs> get out cuz it yeah it makes it really hard
2: so I mean and that's just one example I think of gender if we want to think about it being more welcoming to females and but we also need females to have good mentors in the program or even you know young people not just females but our young people they need to have mentors in place and I see a lot of employees leaving and and, and I was this way so you know New Fashion Pork when they offered me that that co-manager position I jumped on it oh yes that's exactly where I I need to go. That's what I need to do. And I needed a mentor to say, hey, this is where we want you to go, but we need to develop you more here first. And I think there's some mistakes that, you know, in the education or employee onboarding that we talk about, we don't have clear expectations, you know, and then they people said, well, I wanted a raise. I'm going over here because I make a dollar more an hour. And I think if you had timelines and expectations with that, and if they in clear goals that they have to meet to get those raises, those um, promotions and different things and make it, but make it realistic and make a program and making sure you're accountable to that program for yourself and and your company, but also to those employees. And I think you'd see a lot differences that I'd say onboarding, that's where that needs to change clear expectations, a clear career path for that employee. And obviously that's going to change over time. And I think it's okay to hire people who just want to be a power washer the rest of their life. A lot of days in my career, I wish I could just be a power washer.
1: (laughs) I've talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, the less responsibility, the happier. They'll show up on time. They'll do it. They do not want responsibility. Uh, I, I remember talking to a bunch of people too that ended up leaving their companies because their companies told them, this is going to be your last race. They were like 27 and they were really good. They had a lot of responsibility and, and you could see, you could see they were good. And they were just like, they basically told me I'm capped and they didn't give me any guidance towards that next career opportunity. And then they feel trapped.
2: And exactly. And I'm not saying, and I think this is a mistake on the young part, younger people and looking at my hindsight of myself, (laughs) speaking to that, but also our management to say in development programs, and this is where we get a mistake, we think growth comes from promotions or salaries. Mm-hmm. And it's not. What if you take them? You just told me you're taking an MBA program. Well, being a manager on a hog barn, I may not need the MBA. But if I'm investing in further education for my employees, they see that as I'm investing in an employee. It doesn't have to be an MBA program. It could be you know spanish is a second language english is a second language it could be learning how to you know program something and you know as technology grows getting more into computer coding or using how to use excel more in different things and i think that's also the mistake people are thirsty for knowledge and learning and and, you know, the other thing is a lot of these younger people purpose. What is my purpose? If I'm just here just to process pigs the rest of my life and I'm not ever going to make that extra dollar an hour I need to survive. They're going to find somewhere or another job that either serves their needs for their family or finds them purpose.
1: Absolutely. And I think
2: we could create that in the industry.
1: And what I mean in other industries too, master class something that's like four hundred dollars a class. They offer it to their employees. Go ahead, pick any class. It could be how do you smoke a loin all the way to woodworking, to career development. Like there's, There's a lot of resources out there now for low-cost opportunities for classes or certifications. And I guess the thing I kind of want to really dive in now, what are some of the bigger silos we've had as an industry? And which ones have we been able to break down?
2: So there's a few key silos that I look at in our industry. Um, we have our swine producer silos. We have our genetics silos. We have our veterinarian silos. We have our nutrition silos. We have our academic silos. And, it's a big one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we look at that and none of them ever really integrated on decision making. And I spoke to a geneticist and I'm not going to name the person or the company She. They work, They worked for that, um, but it was interesting. I said, because she was explaining to me the multiplier that, you know, on the multiplication system, we only have the guilts there through parity one or two. And so, how could you be genetically selecting or knowing if what happened in her guilt litter impacted her parity four? We don't know. And so, we're, you know, we use that as an example of a selection criteria, in my mind, a missed opportunity. Uh, to make ourselves better for parity four. so my PhD was in Sal longevity and so oh, I was really you know guilt development through style longevity was you know a big thing to me and I look at that and there's always I'm a nutritionist so I I think I'm allowed to say this that there's this distrust or competition between veterinarians and nutritionists and you know nutritionists get mad when veterinarians think they can play nutritionists and veterinarians get mad when yes, we they try get to very play. mad <laughs> and i I just laugh and i've never I've never experienced that with different veterinarians I've worked with It's always been that good relationship that we can work for a common goal and I think if you take the conference that we met you know met at a formally i've heard your name several times, but the the pig survivability one, I think it was a good example of breaking down those silos, so we had a to get that grant, you had to have other universities on there. But you saw three universities with different expertise come together. So I, I that was really promising and nice to see that. And then they utilized the industry for a lot of that research. And, you know, it was focused on this, you know, the industry problem. So I see that as a breaking down of that silo. But yet, you know, I still think there was, you know, a different perception we needed to have in those silos and and maybe the perception of the the producer needed to be seen better. Um, and I think it was maybe how the grant was written and that's how it was. And then maybe jumping into the grant, you know, maybe there was something, maybe we needed a shift. But, you know, when you write those federal grants, yeah. you can't. And so I hope they get another grant and maybe shift their mindset and where they look into next. But to me, that's an example. I, I look at the Kansas State University program, Iowa State even South Dakota State, Purdue University, a lot of these are trying to integrate their students into different research programs. Uh, Don't leave out North Carolina State as well, but um, these different ones are integrating into different production systems and doing their research with commercial uh, producers. So there's lots of different examples of that happening where we are getting some of our students into these production systems to do their research. So I see that barrier separating a little bit there. There um as an example of some of those silos coming down i still don't know if the veterinarians and nutritionists will ever get along but <laughs> i have hope someday they will because i've never really had a bad experience with a veterinarian um i don't like to play veterinarian and if they want to play nutritionist that's fine because go ahead there's a lot more to nutrition than just formulating a diet so
1: absolutely and but from that conference too, I think the big feedback I heard was that day one was incredible. And by them working together, we had a very large audience. It quickly became probably one of the better events of the year for our industry. But day two, a lot of the producers I talked to, they were like checking out. Well, day two was very university focused with grad students talking about projects. And and it's just, we got close to a holistic approach maybe we got a good split for giving everyone what they wanted but you could easily see how producers were so captivated by that first day's mm-hmm. um, that first day's uh, layout and it, it was awesome to see everything come together what are we learning from these silos that we're starting to see come down that we should be focusing on what are some of the key catalysts to this to this to this change and how might we need to focus on a couple other silos and what silos might those be
2: well, I think we need to go to a different model of how we work with academics. I really think COVID realized that you can learn from any, anywhere in the world. We don't have to be sitting in a physical building to learn from. So I was really excited to see that revolutionize academics. From, but I think it goes back into maybe we need to select our students differently. We need to... Maybe they need to do like some other countries where they have a year off or they do a apprenticeship or something for two years and then they go back to college. And I think you can really do that when we look at these rural areas where our swine operations are. For one thing, we need to be in our high schools finding those students who don't have the resources to go to college. When we look at the cost of education, it's ridiculous. And a lot of kids today, I find that I'm working with, my students are working two or three jobs because they don't want to go into debt. And so when we think about that, can you go pinpoint those high school students that are going to be great managers for me who have some interest in agriculture? Can we get them to come work for us and figure out a way to pay them to get their bachelor's degree? So I think, you know, when we look at a new employee development and recruitment, Let's go to high school, find the students that we want and say, "Hey, we're going to pay you go to college based on this contract." Um, and I think you would recruit some really great talent that way. But then I also see we do need a shift of how we're learning um, the traditional semester courses. I think you can learn a lot in four to six weeks in an intensive course, and then use that rest of that semester to be on hog farms, or if you're going into genetics or microbiology or something in the labs. And so I think there's some opportunities there. And then, you know, we look at the experiences students are getting is they're not getting skills in the classroom that translate into what we do on a daily basis.
1: Yeah. Very few,
2: very few. Here's a syllabus. Here's an assignment. Here's a protocol. This is exactly what I expect of you. It's not how the real world works. No. So um, there is some SOPs and things that we have to do, but it's really learning as you go. And so I think if we could take that learning and education system outside of the classroom, there is some core stuff they need to learn and memorize. But as I tell everybody, I have a PhD in Google. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. if I need to find an answer, I Google it. But at least I have the critical thinking ability to say if this this article versus that article is full, full, full of crap or not. So at least I know where I'm going to get my trusted information from. And so when you think about, with the power of technology in our hands, Google it. Uh, And do we need to memorize all this stuff? But do we need to do more on critical thinking? And then, you know, we could talk another breaking down silos, the Pipestone system, the Carthage system, all these vet groups that are getting in the management uh, business. That's really transformed our industry. And I'm not sure if it's good or bad yet. I can't say that um, for my mindset of, is that going to be the future success? But if you think about, you know, our number one problem besides people, it's the health status of our animals. And now if you have veterinarian groups really tied into the management of those animals is that's a good silo in my mind of being broken down and how veterinarians are changing how they manage and and work in the industry. And I know it's about money and making money for them too, but You know, they do have a little bit more control on the day to day stuff that happens on these farms, hopefully, that can maximize health and and help that and prevent disease and things. But yet,
1: sorry. And and with that, there's a varying group of management companies and there's Mm -hmm. good stories and bad stories. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the bad stories that if you are a management company listening that is coming forward from companies that are outsourcing their management is the employees that are on those farms do not feel like they're as heard or as a bigger or as the same part of the purpose. They, they don't feel as connected as an employee at like a new fashion pork, right? I know who I'm working for. I know what the purpose and the vision of the company is and what matters to us. There's a disconnect there on that purpose, And we tend to see some higher turnover rates in some of those scenarios. And so what does it mean to come in as a management company and not just focus on are we raising the pigs right, but are we getting these people bought into the core vision and philosophy of the management company as a whole? Do they see the long-term impact?
2: Wow. You said it, not me, but yeah, I love it. And I think that goes into management companies or we look at the integrated system and I I use an example of coming out of my podcast. You know, I work with an integrator and I work with somebody who does backyard niche, niche pasture pork and I have some independent producers in between. So I have a variety of customers that I work with and I serve. And we talked about the mortality issue and I was really concerned with the model of 8% mortality was the high health system in Edison's presentation, for instance. And I'm going wow, we had many flows that I was getting one and a half percent mortality and we were celebrating because it goes back into the owner is in that barn every day. He's looking at his pigs every day. And I think that goes into these management groups or even the integration system of purpose. You know, it's easy to feel that in a family-owned company and you you get that from working with New Fashion Pork. I got to see the owners. The owners came to our farm. It wasn't and they would talk to me. It wasn't that I was just some farrowing technician working for New Fashion Pork even 20 years ago. And I know it's the same way today working with that system as a customer in the past and having good relationships still with New Fashion Pork is that it's a it's a company, it's a culture. And then we go into these other systems. I think we are failing as a culture because what's my purpose? And it, we can only say it's feeding the world. And, and I think you get in these silos and we look at production and, and maybe we, I always had this crazy idea of management groups. We tend to put people in breeding or farrowing or guilt development or finishing or nursery. Could you set up a management system somehow that people would um, get to manage a pot of sows? Like if we can just work on the sow farm example can they own a pot of those sows and they get to take care of those sows throughout the whole cycle? And obviously, depending on the ebb and flow of work, could they, you know, they would have to help each other out, right? But yet they own those sows.
1: Yes, I, I grew up in finishing in nurseries and sow farms, small, bit, medium, large. I learned the most when I was able to help manage a 1200 farrow to finish. When I was able to be a part of the entire process from the moment I helped birth the pig to loading it onto the truck, that is when the passion for the industry and my understanding grew substantially. And it kind of add to the whole management thing, again, saying there are a lot of great stories as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in these situations, you have these employees who are working for an mm-hmm. owner, but the management company is managing. Mm-hmm. Well, those aren't necessarily aligned. I think sometimes the management company might assume that the owner is doing a great job of connecting with those employees. And sometimes they do, but sometimes the owners are pretty disconnected. And if the owner is disconnected and the management's assuming the owner's driving the philosophy or the, uh, the culture, well, then there really isn't a culture and there's just a disconnect. And so understanding between the owners and the management companies, how do we need to make sure this relationship is driving a positive on-farm culture just seems to be something that needs to be on the top of people's minds.
2: Definitely, and you know, and then how do we fix keeping employees? I think I'm going to switch topics for you a little yeah, bit because we're be talking great. about culture and how do we keep employees. Think about where a lot of our hog farms are they're in rural america yes. what is what else is indicative of rural America? They're childcare deserts Yes. And so my philosophy is I got to visit the Hanor, they call it the ranch. Um, I can't, it's just outside of Enid, about an hour. And they had tons of sows and everything there. And I'm going, all right, where's the local town? I can't even find a gas station on my drive out there.
1: It's a long ways Enid. away.
2: Yeah, long ways away. And I'm thinking about we can't keep employees. What about child care centers? You know, a child care center not only for our employees, but are that's open. The hours our employees work. Imagine if you had that as a free service and changing our culture. You know, and not only do you have child care, but it's the top of the end, you hire a, you know, somebody who's trained in early childhood education, you know, and especially if a lot of our employees are, you know, non-English speaking, for instance, and we can get those children early and develop their English skills and their education skills and these employees see you not only investing in them, but their children, their future, their family. That's why they're here, the American dream. We're not addressing that issue. We th- Everybody thinks the government's going to fix it. No, it's the people who fix it. The government makes problems worse. But imagine if we started doing things like that to create Well, number one problem most parents had in COVID that we realized is childcare and we can't do it alone. But yet we're not addressing that for... Employees that we have, and I use the example $16 an hour. I think we finally got up to it. I was doing the math. You have to have two parents making $16 an hour for a family of four, one child care, and assuming the other child's in in school that you're not paying for that, a car payment and a decent house payment just to get by. It's not taking fancy vacations, it's not doing anything. Yet, you know, we're bragging at 16, or I hear some employers like, I don't know if they're going to make it to give them 16. (laughs) <laughs> do the math if you're not willing to invest in them from the beginning and they think oh it's just a 90-day job and maybe i'll get 16 well guess what if you don't think they're worth it in the 90 days they can get 16 dollars an hour i guarantee you in those 90 days they're looking for another job that's going to pay them 16 hour dollars yeah an we're talking
1: to, we're talking a career here and, and again like i think inv- uh owners need to be looking at what are their competitors especially in education, we want these degrees. We want this ag science background, but I could go get a two-year degree and become a plumber, an electrician, a welder. I, I could do, I could do a, a lot of different things and make a lot more. There is a passion that is needed because of what you're getting paid sometimes to be in this industry. And you don't have the flexibility, sometimes not even a phone on your hands throughout the day. Like there's a lot of other industries that cost less for education, have a lot more flexibility and pay a lot better. Like, how are we going to stack up against that if we drive a need for more education and limit the flexibility? It's just tough. We're we're it's it's a problem we all face, and it, nobody's at fault. It's just it's a challenge.
2: No, and I agree. And and I look at the different jobs I had. I much prefer working for an international company than an American company. My vacation time was better. My health benefits were better. You know, my son was born at 29 and a half weeks of. Gestation. So, and I was sick. You know how much it cost me to have my son who was in the hospital for 70 days in the NICU and myself? A lot. No, how much I paid I
1: don't
2: because know. of my benefits. I paid about $500 deductible. Oh, wow. $1,000 probably. That's it.
1: That's really good.
2: That is really good. But I'm just saying, some of these other companies I would have had, it would have been thousands of dollars of bills. And so we look at some of those things children and young people getting them to come in. They want to have families. Do we have the benefits to support them? You know, maternity leave, that's still something that we can do better at. And, you know, we're not going to do it until the government makes us. Well, I'm not going to come work for you then. (laughs) You know, think about it. If I can go to this other company or this other industry that lets me work on that, and I can give a good example of that. So, I've been doing some series on professional development through coffee and careers in animal science that I work with the students, but been gearing it more towards people. And I was at a hog farm that I work with with research and they were having issues with turnover. And I said, why are you trying to hire these full-time employees that maybe last, you know, some of them are lasting a day or two. You're targeting the wrong employee. You need things done. you got a core group of management and, and long-term people here that do a really good job Why don't you focus on those working moms who want to work between nine and two? Why don't you focus on that retiree who can drive a school bus of pigs? Like instead of hiring people for careers, because we check, you know, this mindset of changes in employees and some people prefer to have two or three jobs that they can have flexibility, hire people for specific tasks. Well, I didn't think the producer listened, but I guess he did. And so I'm really curious the next time I'm up there to visit to see how that's working out for him because he, I guess, had a a whole bunch of interviews with different people when he started advertising differently. So we were thinking about we need an eight to five type employee or on a farm six to two. I'm just using that as an example that my light bulb moment to say we need to even think about the type of employee we hire differently. And is it more of a task employee and how do you utilize part-time labor differently and have your core management group that can have more responsibility?
1: That's a, that's a great question to ask. And I think it's been great to have you on the podcast and I kind of want to wrap up with a couple more questions. Yep. When, we kind of recap on all of this and breaking down silos and barriers that the topic in itself lends itself to controversy. So as people are listening, I hope we hit some buttons. I hope we hit something that at least ask, begs you to ask the question, am I doing this right? And if so, awesome. And if not talk to people, the only way we're going to break down silos and improve is if we have communications together around each other's opinions and thoughts and experiences And I thank you so much, Casey, for offering some of your opinions and experiences. To finish out, I'd like you to tell us one thing about you most of the people that are colleagues with you do not know.
2: I'm an introvert and I have high social yes, and I have high social anxiety that I've had to work through my entire life.
1: You do a great job at managing it.
2: Yes, but it takes a lot of off time as well to manage it that people don't see. So
1: And what is something from you that you would like to offer listeners as a golden nugget, a bit of life advice?
2: So many people out there and it doesn't matter where I've met them in my career or my life are looking for somebody just to listen to them. So if you have a chance to slow down with what you're doing today and just listen to somebody, talk to them, let them speak. Don't rush them because I'm on the next phone call or I have this meeting or we have all these litters to go wean. If somebody's talking and it's important, listen because you may find the ability to impact them beyond your wildest dreams and they'll become loyal to you and you may change people's lives and you may change their paths. But it starts with just taking the time to listen.
1: That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for joining the Popular Pig podcast. It's been a real pleasure and everybody's gained, I think, a lot from this um, from this episode. So thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Matthew. It was a joy to be on.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig we aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.